Good morning, church. We read the earlier portions of Matthew 28 last week, but I want to I start there again because I want you to see something, to set the stage for the Great Commission this morning. So earlier in Matthew 28, verse 9, just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Note that Jesus says, my brothers, not those spineless goofs or (laughs) those guys that abandoned me or even my disciples. He says, my brothers. There's a reminder, there's a shift here that these men and women are co-workers in God's redemption of the whole world. And in John 15, different uh, gospel account, Jesus finishes teaching the disciples about the promised spirit that he will send to them for power and comfort. And then he says in verse 15 of John 15, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in the name of my Father, he will give you. So in this text, in the Great Commission, the end of the book of Matthew, we see this played out, and the next part of God's plan for the world is made clear. And it's really good news for us. Jesus uses broken disciples to make the world whole again. Last week, we looked at Christ on the cross. In his greatest time of need, most of the disciples abandoned him. The very young Apostle John was there, but if any of the others were there, they were back with the crowd far away. Peter, the disciple who claimed he would even die for Jesus if necessary, when things got semi-serious, denied he knew Christ. In Mark 10, when, the, when Jesus tells the disciples he's going to be tortured and executed, James and John, the brothers, have a goofy, selfish reply. They, they go up to him and they're like, hey, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in places of honor? This, this is a great encouragement to me that Jesus calls these men his brothers, his friends. I don't mock the apostles, for their shortcomings, because don't we all waver sometimes between worship and doubt? So for those of you who doubt this very morning, let's hear from Jesus on this mountain. I want you to see this passage this morning, the Great Commission, maybe for the first time in your life, not as some kind of painful duty that's expected of you as a believer, but as a rallying cry instead. A spirit-empowered call to adventure. A spirit-empowered call to be on the front lines of Jesus' renewing work in this world. I am amped up this morning. I told my community group on Friday that this 
passage of scripture really gets me amped up. And then we have Chris up here reading in Spanish, which is part of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Every tribe and tongue and nation hearing about Jesus in their own language and praising him in their own language. And then we sing, great are you, Lord. All the earth will shout your praise. So to prepare us this morning, I want to pray again. We should. So will you pray with me? Spirit, we ask you to put wind in our sails, to encourage us with this text, to fan the flames of faith here this morning. We ask you to help us live in light of your victory and announce your kingship with all joy. Make this possible Produce fruit in us, King Jesus, for your glory, for our eternal joy. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. A lot happens in the other gospel accounts, unlike Matthew, between the resurrection morning and this mountain in Galilee. So Jesus appears to the disciples They were hiding in an upper room Sunday evening, the morning of the resurrection. And then a week later, he he shows up again, and he shows Thomas his side, remember? And then on the way to Galilee, where the Great Commission is given, he sees them again by the shore, and he restores Peter, who denied him three times. So this is at least two weeks after the resurrection. Why have everyone walked so far north? Galilee is about 100 miles away from Jerusalem, where they were at. It's a long walk. Well, there's some connections in the book of Matthew and some points that he's making that I want us to see why Galilee. One reason is that this is pretty much the exact same spot where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus bookends his earthly ministry in the same spot. He starts with the epic Sermon on the Mount, and ends with what we just heard Chris read a few minutes ago. And there's Old Testament prophecy as well that explains why Galilee. We read this pretty much every Christmas from Isaiah 9. But in the future, he, the Messiah, will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So while Galilee did have a large Jewish population, the majority of the people who lived there were Gentiles. So Jesus is making another point, being there, delivering this, that he is bringing light to all people, Jews and Gentiles. There's another connection at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when you read in Matthew chapters 5 through the end of chapter 7, listen to what Matthew reports, chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished teaching these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority, not like their scribes. And then our text this morning opens with, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So his earthly ministry starts with rumors of authority and ends with a resurrected king that has all authority. And if the Sermon on the Mount 
could be summarized as what real Christians look like, then the Great Commission is the bookend to that. Real disciples make disciples. Meaning, if what Jesus is describing in Matthew 5 through 7 is actually ever increasing in your heart and God is making you into that kind of follower, then you will be compelled to move toward the lost and grow with other believers. The Great Commission is the outward movement of what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, radical humility and love for our neighbor. So a couple weeks after the resurrection, he appears to the disciples a few times. He appears to the men on the road to Emmaus. The crowd knows that Jesus has promised to speak to his disciples on this hillside in Galilee. So the crowd gathers to hear Jesus again. That's the setup for the Great Commission. Paul probably references this moment in 1 Corinthians 15. Then he, Jesus, appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. So that sets the stage for this hilltop in Galilee. So look with me at Matthew 28, starting with verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this first part, there's four all statements in the Great Commission. And the first one is about all authority. Nothing hinders Jesus. He has no limitations. He's saying at this point, all authority has been bought by me, possessed by me, given to me. I have every drop of it in the universe. Now, many authors over the last 2,000 years of Christendom have tried to meditate on this passage and understand the depths and the breadth of what this really means. You've heard me said several times that Jesus is the king of the cosmos is a way to just feebly attempt to give the glory to him that's due to his name. Where do we even begin with this kind of statement? Because so often, we're convinced that everything actually revolves around us. But everything actually revolves around Jesus. It's the core belief of Christianity. Consider just his authority that he wielded during his earthly ministry. One preacher says this, he had so much authority that he was a problem to the Jewish system because they believed they were the authorities. And they had a very highly developed and sophisticated system of authority, and he absolutely ignored it. He never asked their information for anything. He never asked them to approve his doctrine. He never asked them to approve his healings. He never asked them to approve his casting out of demons. He never asked them 
to approve his verdicts or his judgments. He didn't ask them to help him decide who were the children of God. He didn't ask their advice on anything. He sought no earthly approval, no earthly credentials. He never consulted the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees. He never once in Scripture quoted an eminent rabbi. He showed up at that moment as the ultimate teacher of teachers, peerless. Let's consider his authority right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, with all authority given to him by God the Father because of his work on the cross and the empty tomb. He has authority over Satan and all demons and all angels, good and evil. He has authority over the natural universe, objects and laws and forces like stars and planets and galaxies and meteorites. He has authority over all weather systems, winds and rains, lightning and thunder and hurricanes and tornadoes and all their effects, the tidal waves, everything. All authority over molecular and atomic reality, atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, subatomic particles, quantum physics that we don't even understand yet, DNA, chromosomal realities, all plants, all animals, doesn't matter the size, whales, redwoods, squid, oaks, all fish, wild beasts, and all invisible animals, bacteria, viruses, parasites, germs, he has authority over them. And some of you at this point may be thinking, if I can be honest with how I know some of us have objections, well, he doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of this then. Because there's chaos and there's war and there's death everywhere. Scripture's response to that is that God actually massively restrains the evil of men. His very presence on the earth keeps wicked mankind from their worst potential. And everything that he does is for his glory and for the eternal good of his people. So that means that while you may think you would do a better job, this planet would be a heaping ash pile were it not for God's restraining presence and the church's work in this world. He has authority, Jesus does, over all the parts and functions of the human body. Every beat of my heart, every movement of my diaphragm, every million or billion synapses firing in my brain. He has all authority over nations and governments and congresses and legislatures and kings and premiers and courts. He has all authority over armies and terrorists and bombs and weapons, all authority over industry and business and currency, entertainment, amusement, leisure, media, education, research, science, discovery. He has authority over his body, the church. He even had authority over his own resurrection. He said, I lay down my life and I take it back up again. So Jesus quotes no one. He footnotes nothing. He can't turn to the left or the right to find a peer or someone to consult for advice or counsel. 
He has authority over every soul in the universe, every moment, every second of every life lived, now, previously, forever, anywhere in the universe. To put it simply, Christ is the sole universal monarch. He is the Lord of all. This is the highest Christology found in the Bible, this text this morning. Jesus is plainly saying that he shares the authority that God has. Jesus is saying he's distinct from the Father and yet is in charge of creation just as the Father is. And later on in our passage, the Trinity is explicitly named in verse 19. We're baptized into one name that is paradoxically three names, Father, Son, and Spirit. So you may think, well, all that is great. What does this authority mean for me in this moment? And I want you to know that this passage is as much a great encouragement as it is a great commandment. Because while Jesus does have all authority, he is also the friend of sinners. And he doesn't wield this authority from some far off place. His spirit is near to us. His authority should bring great comfort to us. What does that look like? Well, when you're down and you're depressed, he has all authority, he is near, and his power does bind up the brokenhearted. When you want to give up, he has all authority and he is near. His power is made perfect in your weakness. When you're despised and you're betrayed, he still has all authority and he still is near. And his power will sustain you and you have joined into his suffering. When you think you've sinned your way out of salvation, he has all authority and he is near. Just as he had power to make the paralyzed man walk, he says to you this morning, church, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? His power keeps you. When you've been unbelievably hurt by those who claim to love you, he has all authority and he is near and he will judge justly and right every wrong. Jesus tells his disciples about his authority to give them confidence before a single command is given. Do you see that? He tells them who he is and how powerful he is and how near he is to them before he asks them to do a single thing. Now let's look at all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Because I have all authority, Jesus is saying, now go and tell everyone about what I have done. If you were born and raised in Texas, like I was, you know about Juneteenth. And it's now a federal holiday. But I was really surprised last year to know the rest of the country didn't know about it or didn't know about it like people from Texas know about it. I always remember it. Uh, it's always been a big deal. Um, it's a Texas holiday. Juneteenth marks the day 
when federal troops arrived in Galveston to take control of the state and to make sure that all enslaved people were actually set free. And it was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Lincoln. So Jesus commands us to go to the whole world. And when you go to the nations, you don't go as some kind of imperialist bringing some Western religion or Western form of society. As a Christian, you show up and it's Juneteenth. You come with incredibly good news for the captives, the slaves to sin. And you're just not announcing two and a half years of federal freedom. You're announcing 2,000 years of cosmic freedom that's been offered to the captives in the name of Jesus. Piper says it this way, since Jesus has all authority, that's why he has the right to say, go everywhere. Matthew 28, 18 is a search warrant for us breaking into other cultures. <laughs> Almost no one in America believes we have a warrant to do this today. This is massively politically incorrect, but we have a warrant. We don't do this kind of thing without a warrant. You don't go into somebody's culture or house and say, Jesus is Lord of this house. Jesus is Lord of this culture without a warrant. What is the warrant? Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus has triumphed over all his enemies, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So go. We'll go where? To every tribe and tongue and nation and people with the message of the gospel. Judgment is coming, but you can be set free from your slavery to sin through faith in Christ. Now, does that mean that every single individual Christian is called to partake in international missions? Yes and no. I trip myself up with the word partake. What I should have said was, does that mean every single individual Christian is called to physically go in international missions? Paul says in Romans 15, uh, he asks for the Christians he's writing to to support him in prayer and financially as he goes to Spain. Paul doesn't say, all you real Christians get on a boat and all you lame Christians stay here where you're reading this. That's not what he's implying. He's implying that some are called to do cross-cultural missions and all the rest are called to support them. All the rest are called to support them in prayer and financially. So how can you respond? You can respond to vetted, trained, and equipped cross-cultural missionaries just like Paul asked for for prayer and money in Romans 15. This very church, I'm glad we prayed for them today, supports a couple. They went out from us to the nations as cross-cultural missionaries. We have at least two more couples trying to seek and find if that is what God is calling them to do with this part of their life. And what will we do? Train them, support them with prayer and with finances. Grace Church will be home base, financial home base, prayer home base, Zoom calls, care packages. That's what you can do. Be a part of a church body that loves and cares for and supports those called to go cross-culturally. The great statesman and theologian 
Abram Kuyper famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. So we can go. Let me encourage you this morning. You will never walk into a house, an office building, get on a plane, or land in a foreign nation where Christ is not Lord of it. The darkest, most sinful cities on planet Earth, Christ is Lord, and he is working there. The Muslim world, Christ is Lord, and he is working there. At your family reunion, Christ is Lord, and he is working there. The very place that you lay your head at night, Jesus is Lord over it, and he is working there. So let this empower your evangelism. Proclaim Jesus as the ruling and reigning Savior because he really is Lord over wherever you are at. Every house and every culture. Look again with me at verse 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So we've looked at all authority and all nations, and now we're to the part where he talks about teaching all that he commanded, making disciples. So what is a disciple? Well, for those of you in D groups here at Grace, this is the definition that we use. A disciple is a spirit-filled, lifelong follower, learner, and servant of Jesus. I don't remember who said this, but it's true. Disciples don't grow on trees. They are made. It takes time and study and community and grace to make disciples. So while we should go And it should cost us greatly as we strive to reach the nations with the gospel. We can't miss this part of the Great Commission. This part is often overlooked. That there is crucial work to be done here and now. I'll let this quote inform that. She says, when we talk about the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we often focus on the evangelistic part of the command, forgetting that the emphasis was on discipleship. Jesus didn't say, go and do an altar call, make people cry, have an amazing experience, and then move on to the next city. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Notice that the focus is on long-term faithfulness and obedience, not on emotion or a short-term spiritual high. Faithful discipleship is hard. It requires community, vulnerability, prayer, and study. It can certainly include those mountaintop experiences, but it doesn't depend on them. We can't ignore the weight of Jesus' command here to teach believers to observe everything that he commanded. 
During Jesus' earthly ministry, he made clear that he believed through quoting the Old Testament extensively that the Old Testament is God's word. It's true and good, and you should know it. So when I said earlier, Jesus never footnoted anyone. He only footnoted himself. (laughs) Imagine turning in a paper when you were in college, and one of the footnotes just said, it came to me in a personal revelation. It would not go very well. That's what Jesus did. He said the Old Testament is God's word. And then the New Testament contains Jesus' teaching, which means to obey this command, we must teach the whole book, the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation, all the difficult portions, all the portions that bother us as modern Western people, we should look at them, understand them, and ask, what is God teaching us at this portion of the Scripture? Notice that Jesus didn't say, uh, just teach them everything. He said something infinitely harder, to not only know the commands, but also to observe them. It's one thing to just beat commands and laws into people, right? Totally possible to do. Legalism is an easy way to uh, create and support a church. But actually have people observing and obeying the commandments, not out of duty, but out of joy, and out of that's because of the kinds of people that they are saved by the Spirit, is infinitely harder. It's actually impossible. It's impossible for a human being on their own to observe all that Jesus commanded. Only God can accomplish this miracle. Think about some of the commands that Jesus gave us. Take up your cross and follow me. Love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Fear the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Worship God in spirit and in truth. Always pray and don't lose heart. Don't be anxious about anything. Humble yourself and be the servants of everyone. Don't hold any grudges. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, not on earth. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. Make disciples of all nations. That's just an impossible list. How are we supposed to teach fallen, fallible, self-centered creatures like us to obey those commands? But if you noticed, several in that list I left out. I left out the actual foundational commands that Jesus gave to make all the others possible. Jesus commanded, you must be born again. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Believe in me, the fountain of living water. Repent of self-reliance and sin. Love me above all others. Listen to me, my words are life. Abide in me like a branch in a life-giving vine. Those commands say to us, Jesus says, I know that you are helpless. But if you trust me and abide in me, I will bear fruit in your life. It's about 
obedience, not mustering up the ability to perform these commands. And if you're a non-believer and you're here today, or you're doubtful, or you're wavering, do you hear this good news? And I have to ask you, what is your response? You can't just sit there and listen. Because the Lord of all who says, I have all authority, and I am returning for my people, is calling you to obey him. And you can't obey him unless you submit to his lordship. So what's your response to what Christ has done on your behalf? I want us all to see that Jesus' commands are not burdens. They're not things we have to do to earn the Father's favor. If you've ever heard that, you have to do something to earn God's love. That is a curse from hell. That is a lie straight from the pit. All the favor you could ever want, all the favor that's ever been offered that the Father has for you has been given in Christ's sacrifice. He fully and finally paid for all the sins of his people. So all the favor you need with God is found in faith in Christ. So Jesus' commands are not things we have to do. They're things we get to do. That people apart from God actually can't do these things. They can't experience the joy. They can't experience the nearness. They don't feel the affections of the Father. They only feel judgment because they don't trust in Christ. So we're commanded this morning to not obey this great commission by our own power, but in the power of God to baptize and teach believers. That means saved, born-again, grace church member, that what you're doing right now, being a part of a community group or D-group, men's and women's training, serving the church, it means you're obeying part of the Great Commission because the reason this church exists is to make disciples. That's the point. Make disciples who delight in the Trinity and cultivate deep friendships and boldly evangelize. It's not babysitting. It's sharing the gospel with kids who need to hear it and respond to it. It's not a list of programs. It's the formation of our souls to make us look more like King Jesus, to be maturing disciples. So if you're wondering why have we talked about the Great Commission and only spent a little bit of time talking about international missions, they matter tremendously, but we cannot miss the importance of the local church in fulfilling the Great Commission. I love some parachurch ministries, but family, the church is plan A, home base. The body makes obeying the Great Commission possible. So what we do here every week deeply matters. Your service to this body is service to the Lord. So be a part of this body as we together, as individuals and corporately, make disciples, plant churches, 
equip and send out cross-cultural missionaries. We baptize believers like we're going to do it Easter morning, and we celebrate unashamedly that we do it in the power of the one that has all authority, that it's not about us, it's never been about us, and it never will be about us. It's only about the glory and honor due Jesus' name. That's why we send out missionaries. That's why we're going to plant a church in East Parker County so that more people can know the king is here. We know his name. We know who he is. We know what he's done. And we can respond in love and adoration and be born again by the power of God. And then don't just sit there and be weird, stagnant, useless, born-again baby Christians, but actually mature and grow and disciple others. Like I said earlier, real disciples make disciples. It's a process, and we keep going. I don't want you, the reason I get amped up is because I don't want you to hide in this church until you hit a point of perceived spirituality where you can then begin to serve the body. The way Christ matures you as his disciple is through service, is through humility, is by proclaiming the gospel, is by moving forward and walking with Jesus. Get the car out of park and start moving. You're never going to hit some level of spirituality where you feel like, oh, now I can join in the war of Christianity. Now I can really take up the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Now I can really begin to bless my brothers and sisters. The time to start is now, right now. And if you're in an area where you're not gifted, the spirit and the people of God will kindly redirect you to an area where you are gifted. It happens all the time. Don't be afraid to step out in servants for your maturation and for the blessing of the people in this body. We're a family We're a family, which means every part of this body matters intensely. You have something that I don't have. You have a gift from the Spirit that someone on staff here does not have. And God's design is not that we sit on our hands. God's design is that we stand up and work together to further the kingdom of God and to see more disciples made. In our text today, we're being called to join into something infinitely greater and infinitely more honorable than any commendation or presidential medal of freedom from any earthly king or leader that's ever existed. Why are we so worldly? I worry that we've heard the Great Commission so many times, maybe we've grown tired with the passage. And so I'll let Jesus speak to that. He says in John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. So this Jesus, who has all authority in the universe, is calling us this morning as a church and as individuals to continue the work of the apostles and call the sheep that are far off from their shepherd who loves them. And the last all 
is for all time. And I want to close by letting Jesus encourage us that we will never be alone. We will never have to do this on our own. Christ is with you, believer. Christ's power is empowering you, believer. Christ will be with you with his authority. Through the promised Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is dwelling with us. Jesus says in verse 20, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. He abides with us. So if they throw you in jail, he's with you. If they cut off your head, he is with you. If you find great success in making disciples, he is with you. Jesus has commanded us to do nothing apart from him this morning. Not an ounce. That's really good news for for weak and needy people like us, right? You can't muster obedience to the Great Commission. It's spirit-powered. So I want you to find peace in Jesus' words this morning. I am with you always to the end of the age. That means every second, every situation, every conversation, the power and authority of Christ is present with you. No matter how it looks on the surface, God is always working for his glory and our eternal good. Every time you find the proclaiming of the gospel to be awkward to a family member, Jesus is with you. Every time it hurts to give to the mission of God or a missionary that's about to leave and go to a cross-cultural mission, Jesus is with you. Every time you have to look at your calendar and find time to be a maturing disciple and to make other disciples, Christ is with you. Every conversation, every situation, he is with you and his kingdom is still advancing. It's still moving into the darkest regions of this world. The light of Christ is shining. I want to end with a quote from Spurgeon. Brethren, brothers and sisters, the heathen are perishing, shall we let them perish? His name is blasphemed. Shall we be quiet and still? The honor of Christ is cast to the dust, and his foes revile his person and resist his throne. Shall we, his soldiers, suffer this and not find our hands fleeing for the hilt of our sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God? Our Lord delays his coming. Shall we begin to sleep or to eat? or be drunken. What a great privilege it is to be a part of God's work in this world. The story continues. The work still has to be done. Let us not be found complacent. At the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us not be found sitting on our hands. But let's be motivated not to do this in our own power, 
but to join in what God is already doing in this world, empowered by the Spirit, knowing that he has all authority and all power so that we can see with our own eyes and be brought into the story where disciples are made and men and women are saved. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Spirit, help us again as we consider this passage to not see it as a burden, but to see it as a call to mission, as a call to adventure, as a call to great hope. I pray that you speak to every born-again believer here this morning and, and ask them, are you making disciples? Are you going to the nations? Are you proclaiming my kingship? And if there's any sense of guilt welled up when that question is asked, Jesus, I pray that you take it away and replace it with great encouragement to begin the mission to start today, to not sit and wonder, oh, what would it have been like if I would have started 10 years ago or five years ago or last month? But remind us that you write our story, that every twist and turn is for your glory and our eternal joy. And I pray that those here today that find themselves stagnant will see and savor you, Jesus, as the almighty treasure that you are and will feel emboldened because of your authority and your power to proclaim the gospel, to go to the nations, to be a healthy member of this body, to make disciples. Do that in us, Lord. Take away the guilt. Replace it with encouragement. Remind us of who we are and whose we are. That our only hope in life and death is that we belong body and soul to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave his life for us. May that be the motivation for our obedience. May that be what calls us to respond to your commands this morning. We ask all these things in the mighty name of the one who holds all authority, the resurrected king of the cosmos, King Jesus. Amen.